everyone. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma broadcast. This broadcast, as usual, is audio. Maybe no video, or the video is just the slides of questions. And this is on purpose, since our focus is not on some relationship. Our focus is on ourselves. So a good attitude to take is to approach this as a meditation session. But meditation, remember, we're talking about mindfulness meditation, which isn't like other meditations. It's not a meditation session in the sense that you have to go into some sort of trance. Having to meditate and specifically to filter your experience, to purify your experience. So we're not trying to eliminate or avoid experiences in particular. That's not our, uh, our inclination. That's not our intention. Our intention is just to filter, to, to write ourselves in relation to our experience. So that when we see or hear, smell, taste, feel, think, that we perceive it as seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, rather than as something more than that, something that we imagine it to be in our mind. Something good, bad, something scary, something intoxicating, something that will cause us to get attached, to get caught up, and to act in ways that don't help us, and don't help others. When you're intoxicated, you can't expect to do the right thing or say the right thing or do things that lead to peace and happiness. So this session is a time for us to develop this purity of experience where we experience things just as they are. And speaking of purity, so... I'll, because tonight is our bi-weekly sutta study, this international thing that I'm involved in. And I've been assigned the, I think it's the second to last of the Mangala, Viraja. I've been asked to talk about, I've been asked to talk about the Viraja blessing viraja meaning cleaned of impure cleansed of impurities vi meaning gone out or left or removed and Raja means dirt, defilement. So I'll talk for a little while, and you're welcome to post questions in the chat that our volunteers are sorting out as they get posted. Uh, the top questions are going to be those that relate to practice or questions that really require an immediate answer for the benefit of the person asking or really provide help to the questioner.
you're welcome to chat as well for now. Once we get to the question period, then it's just questions only, no chatting. But you're recommended to, to just close your eyes and try and be present and be mindful of your experience. Trying to see them just as they are. So defilement. Defilements are one of those key concepts in Buddhism. I end up talking about them a lot. A lot. Probably talked about them recently, actually. I don't really keep track. But I've talked um, about them maybe a little differently than I have before. Viraja. Viraja is, is the... Describing the state of an arahant, really. The state of someone who has... There's no potential for the arising of any corrupt state. Someone who is safe, who is fearless, who is free from sadness. There's nothing that can get to them, nothing that can shake their peace and happiness. So I'll talk about defilement, uh, I'm going to talk about it in the context of, or under the framework of these three categories the Buddha talked about, the gratification, the danger, and the, the escape. The Buddha talked about in regards to sensuality, but you can adapt it to talk about all defilement. The defilements have a gratification. We are. We have some sense of grat being gratified by them. Of course, the obvious one is sensuality, but any greed, any desire can be gratifying. If you want to accomplish something, to become something, and then you become or accomplish that, even though there's no sensuality potentially involved, you can feel very proud of yourself when you get it. course, desire for sensuality is gratifying. There's a gratification in the pleasure that you gain when you get the pleasure that you want. But even anger, anger can be gratifying. It's, it's generally not. It's, it's quite unpleasant to be angry. But we're still gratified, and that's a reason why we become angry, why we continue to be angry, because, because we find it gratifying. We, we we like to get angry. Gratifying when you threaten someone else with your anger. They can be you can make them afraid of back down. You get what you want from your anger. It can make you feel self righteous, vindictive, when you're angry at someone and you 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 feel righteous about your anger. It makes you feel less afraid sometimes, less timid, less of a victim when you get angry. And it has some positive effects on the body, though I would say a lot of the effects are negative. The heat and the tension and stress that come from anger are very negative. But there's also a potentially adrenaline, which can feel good, feel powerful. Body tenses up out of anger that can feel top powerful. Concrete. And the third, of course, delusion. Delusion has a gratification. When you prop yourself up, you have pride or conceit, arrogance can be quite gratifying. As long as you don't pay attention to how other people see you, how arrogant, how conceited, how boastful and braggadacious you are it can feel quite gratifying it can be gratifying to be deluded and and ignorant 
ignorance is bliss, right? We can be quite gratified that we don't care about anything. It's gratifying not to care because then you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to fix the problem. You don't have to deal with your problems. You just ignore them. It's gratifying to just dull your senses with things like alcohol and drugs. Prop up your delusion, your sense of entitlement, or your sense of lack of concern, sense of easygoing carelessness. Buddhism is all about being careful. When you're careless, it can be quite gratifying. You just keep saying, I don't care, I don't care. That's gratification. And so I make this out to be very good things. It sounds like, well, then there's no problem, is there? But you see, that's the second part, is there is a problem. This isn't the whole story. Danger. What is the danger of defilements? Well, the danger of greed is loss, of course. Being denied, and and more importantly, being denied something that you want. You see, because the thing about desire is it makes you want. It develops the want, and so before desiring something, if you didn't get it, you wouldn't suffer. But the more you're gratified, the worse. The disappointment becomes. You can rage and become in, 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 in crazy, insane with with the disappointment of not getting what you want. Depressed, sad devastated when you lose things. The more you care about something, the more you desire something, the more you like something, love something, someone. If you've ever been jilted or uh, dumped, it can be devastating to not have your desire requited. When someone you love dies, this is the danger. The danger that really turns out to be kind of pitiful. Because we place so much meaning in, in, the, in the gratification of things. How wonderful it is to have this or that. As though it had some meaning. When we're just really ants or insects. Or, or our, our desires, our meaning. You know, things like family marriage, or even things like food or clothing, you know, things that we take as being pleasurable and, and gratifying are so pointless and inconsequential, foolish. When you look at the bigger picture, we're like ants in an anthill. We destroy everything and make our homes like these termite mounds. This is what we look at what we've done to the earth. If you take a look at the bigger picture, even still a small picture, look at what we're doing to the earth, destroying it, polluting it, all for our desires. We're, all, we're just ants, meaningless. And so when we get upset, when we think it's, it's right for us to, to suffer when we lose, and, and it's wrong that we had to lose, and it was right for us to cling. We just have to step back and see how, how silly it is. We are born and die again and again, and we keep coming back to this same meaningless gratification and disappointment cycle. We lose what we, we get, and we lose, and we get, and we lose. The biggest danger is it keeps putting us back into this cycle where we keep suffering again and again, devastated again and again whenever something bad happens. And our, our happiness depends on, 
on it comes to depend on things that it shouldn't depend on like it's not that you can't be happy without these things it's not that this is the only option it's that it's like our happiness becomes restricted reduced to a get or not get situation the truth the, the liberating truth is that you get much more happiness when you let go the happiness that comes outside of being dependent this independent happiness is so much greater when you're at peace and content free from need all right so i don't want to take too much time with this i'll just go on to the uh, well talk a little bit more about the dangers then we'll go on to the release so another one way to look at the the dangers is if you look at the three levels of defilement there's external the the apparent defilements that are are manifested physically and verbally there's the mental defilements that have arisen in the mind and then there's the potential the inclination like the the character that we have that is what causes defilements to arise in the first place like our our state of habits and personality three levels so talking about specific dangers when the specific dangers of of expressing our defilements physically or verbally are the, the this is where real life consequences arise uh, expressing our desire physically and verbally is what get, what changes our lives. It's what gets us caught up. When you speak about things that you want or when you speak with anger, this is what changes relationships, gets us caught up in all sorts of busyness. Express your love for someone and then suddenly you're in a relationship and then you have all the complexities, complications and entanglements involved there. When you express anger, when you're cruel and harsh to others, it gets you caught up in the cycle of revenge and changes the world. Or, in general, our expression of defilements externally, which sometimes we can't help, right? We just explode saying things we regret, doing things we regret. This has immediate consequences painting a picture here of the things that we have to fix the problem with life and comes down to this this defilement we express them externally and other people see well it changes our situation this is what changes our life so by mindfulness at, at the very least mindfulness addresses this we might still get angry inside but when we're mindful then we don't express it and really does a lot for our, our relationships when we're more patient with people when we're more patient about the things we want it makes us less needy less indebted to others you find that whenever you want something you end up becoming indebted in some way and then you get caught up in these systems of of repayment of all sorts the uh, defilements that are in the mind the ones when they arise in the mind well these also have consequences in the here and now but the bigger consequence that they have especially when no one else finds out about them is is in terms of how they change our direction they change the the course of our lives they change our outlook what we intend to do how we incline to do what we're able to do right they limit our choices when you're angry you don't have as many choices as when you're not angry right? and the more angry you become the more your choices become limited the more your paths become limited defilements especially delusion limit our chances our choices 
because delusion limits our information, limits our relationship with reality. The more deluded, the more blind you are, ignorant you are, even conceited and arrogant, the less you are able to see reality as it is. And so the less you're able to interact with the world in a positive and a peaceful way. And of course, these are the these these become habit forming, and they have a, a lasting effect, even when at the moment when we pass away. On the level of our our potential, though, like our makeup, who we are, that that is what gives rise to these defilements in the mind. These are the ones that. Present what you could say the ultimate in danger because they aren't themselves harmful, but they're dangerous. And this is one that this is a way of talking about defilements that is very important in Buddhism because a person unfamiliar with the way the mind works and, and what we normally call the subconscious in the West, it's a, it's a misleading term, but that's how we refer to it. You might you might be quite peaceful, especially when things are going well for you, right? You might be quite pure in the in mind, and pure in action and speech. So those two levels of defilements are are, are taken care of, and you you get this idea that your your mind is pure. And on one level, that may be true. But you know, mostly it's not, mostly even it's not because we're just unable to see how the, the refined levels of defilement, especially delusion. But ultimately, this is why they say adversity is how you know a person. You know a person's worth when they're challenged. When things are going well, it's hard to tell whether someone is a good person or someone who's consumed by defilements because, well, it's easy to deal with easy things. Anyone can do it. This is a, one, one thing to note about mindfulness meditation is that it's purposefully challenging. It's often common to hear meditators complain or be discouraged by how challenging meditation is, thinking having an expectation or having a, a, a this idea of meditation as being some pleasant comfortable thing and, and it's actually it's quite the opposite it's meant to face it's meant to help you face uncomfortable truths uncomfortable realities and that's uncomfortable on purpose because you're trying to learn about yourself and see the nature of your mind which involves how you react to challenging situations. All right, I'm actually going to stop there. I don't I'm not going to go into the release. I, I I will I will just end by saying as far as the release goes, and I've already talked some about it. This is what we do in our practice. So this is more uh this talk is more a reminder of why we're doing what we do. Why would we practice mindfulness? Why would we try to straighten out our mind? When we straighten out our perception and we, we perceive things clearly, then we'll have a chance to see the arising of our defilements and we'll see the problems with that and the dangers with that. This is what changes our uh, latent defilements, our subconscious, not really subconscious, but the potential for them to arise because based on the change of perspective, our change of perception of the rightness or the wrongness of all of these things, there's there's no potential for certain things to arise. The, the potential for things to arise is changes. When you're clear about how harmful and useless something is, the potential for it arises disappears. So this is why we would practice to see more clearly, why we practice mindfulness, not to 
have an easy time walking and sitting, but to see why we're having a hard time walking and sitting, to, to really understand why it is that we have a hard time doing things like walking and sitting. So that's all for talking. I'd like to invite people to ask questions. I see there's a bunch already. Remember, we're trying to have questions about meditation, questions that need an answer. If you don't have a question, just sit back. Just take some time to be mindful together. Let's begin. Is the noting of feeling physical, mental, or can it be both? Can we note mental pain? I would only use feeling for some physical feeling. Mental feelings aren't actually feelings per se. I mean, okay. Um, it's complicated, but I wouldn't use the note feeling for that. Because feeling is too, so general that it would only refer to something that couldn't be called something else. Well, feeling is more like a sensation if you just say feeling. But there are many things that we describe as feelings, right? That's what you're getting at. I mean, sadness, you can say, is a feeling. If you hurt someone's feelings, it means you gave them a sad feeling. But it's sadness. You would say sad. Uh, so mental pain, it's not really pain. It's, it's disliking. I mean, actually, all feelings are mental. Physical doesn't feel anything. The rocks don't feel anything. It's only the mind that is aware of the that, that has the feeling. But there are names for all of them. There's pleasure, pain. But pain is a word that we use to describe the physical feeling. If it's mental, what you would call mental, it's usually there's nothing related to, it doesn't have a physical cause, right? So then it's some kind of sadness or anger. And those are more proper. If if it just feels like a real anguish, mental anguish, you could say pain, but I would still say anguish, or I would even try to dissect it and say it's disliking, something like that. Sad even, depending. Is sleepiness during meditation a physical or mental object or both? If it is both, how does one thing lead to the other? How should I look to face it directly? Well, you should just say to yourself, tired, tired. When you feel sleepy, you just say sleepy. Now, you're not going to be able to fix it, right? It sounds like to some extent you're thinking of what can I do to, to, uh, to fix it. There's no addressing it. We're not exactly addressing things. We're just trying to see them more clearly. And what you're probably seeing is that by the time you say tired, it, it's already gone or so on, or it's slippery, and then it comes back when you're not looking, right? And that's a part of the challenge of the practice. And part of it is realizing that it is arising and ceasing. There's nothing wrong with the fact that by the time you note, it's already gone. The noting isn't to somehow catch it and shoot it like a gun or something. The noting is a reminder that that was, that was sleepiness, that's all it is, so that you don't go anywhere with it, you don't get caught up in it. Well, by the time you said sleepy and it's gone, okay, just go back to practicing, and if it comes back, just note it again. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not doing anything wrong when that happens. It's, it's actually quite right, because what you're seeing is that it comes and goes, which is just an important thing to see about everything, so that you lose your any potential getting upset or attached to it. it just comes and goes that's all it is there's no meaning behind it after meditating for some time now i sometimes can read people like what they are thinking and some things which happen in the future i see visions from time to time is it normal so I don't answer the question, is it normal? And I'll say this about it. I've talked about this before, but here's the point, is that the universe doesn't have any normal. Your universe, your experience, that won't have a normal. There's no normal. And, and I mean, this question, I guess, is usually answered, or usually asked relating to what percentage of meditators come to this, right? Which is not useful. 
it's not it's especially not useful because we're not in we're, we're interested very much in the unpredictable nature of reality this is maybe i guess something new that you haven't had before and the problem with abnormal things is they cause reactions in us abnormal things can cause fear abnormal in the sense something we something is new to us and more generally impermanence causes these things impermanence as a concept the reality of unpredictable nature of the universe it can cause fear it can cause anxiety it can cause sadness when we lose something right it can also cause um attachment you think it's something special maybe uh, this is a good example you think this is something special that you got and it feels kind of exciting maybe you get conceited about it that you have some special power or so on but it doesn't matter there's no difference with any of these all of these are just reactions and that's the point is that we get caught up in some way or another and and asking if it's normal i'm not attacking i mean this is something that we get i get asked a lot is this normal is that normal and it's important to change that perception and not ask that question because start you have to start to realize that's not what we're on about we're not looking for something normal we're not we're not trying to assess things based on their being normal we're not even trying to assess things at all we're, we're just trying to see things clearly and part of that means being able to see the unpredictable nature of reality doesn't matter whether something is normal by any standard. And what matters is that it has arisen, and that what matters is that you see it as just what it is, something that has arisen, that you don't see it as more than what it is. So all of these things should be an object of meditation, even special experiences. There's nothing special about them. I mean, okay, in a worldly sense, you have to argue that they are special, but it's just a worldly convention. They are what they are. They are experiences still that arise and cease. You see visions, you would say seeing, seeing. That's it. Too easy to get attached. Caught up in. As a meditator, is it okay to let liking or disliking arise and note them? Or do I have to stop the chain reaction at the moment of contact or sensation? No, mindfulness isn't about stopping. It's just about seeing clearly. The thing is, once you see clearly, it stops. There's no problem there. It is a way of stopping. Sati is a, is a inhibitor. It breaks the chain. It's just a matter of cultivating that ability to actually see anger as anger, greed as greed. It stops immediately, and it's this is hard to see in the beginning because it still feels like it's there because there's the physical manifestation. When you like something, there are many physical chemicals in the body and, and reactions in the body. Anger is the same. There's also the heat and the tension. It feels like you're angry, but you you notice in the mind you're not angry anymore. So you have to be able to separate the physical and the mental. But sati is the best. Sati, yani sotani lokas ming sati te sangniwaryam. Whatever streams there are in the world whatever uh, potential ways of getting caught up in things there are sati is the inhibitor of all of them why is it better to learn about the characteristics of the phenomena of body and mind rather than just calming craving down and letting it go bit by bit Because craving has a cause. Craving isn't caused by not being calm. Craving is caused by delusion and ignorance. So be, being calm isn't fixing the problem. It isn't fixing the cause. As far as letting something go, I'm not sure how you hope to accomplish that. What does it mean to let go of something? Let go by forcing yourself? Let go by controlling? Because that's not letting go. Letting go means not getting involved in, but that only comes from from mindfulness, from seeing clearly. So as for why it's better to learn about the characteristics, well, that's a bit 
you have to be precise about what you mean by characteristics. We're not exactly trying to learn anything. We're trying to, I mean, what I mean is our our outlook is not about learning per se. It's about seeing. Now, the thing is, when you see, you do learn, but you aren't thinking to learn. And And the distinction is important because when you're thinking to learn, you get intellectual about it. You start looking for things to learn, looking for the characteristics, for example. Looking for characteristics and, and thinking that you're going to learn something is, is, a, is a problem in meditation. All we're trying to do is look and see, no, sorry, maybe not, to see clearly, to open our eyes, to cleanse our door, the doors of perception. When you see it clearly, you'll learn all you need to know. I mean, the learning just comes by itself. And it's that learning which is the solution for the cause of things like craving. Craving is the cause. Do I need to practice also samatha meditation to rest and calm the mind whenever I want or need to? Or is vipassana enough? Vipassana is enough. Vipassana has samatha in it. We call it vipassana. See, you need samatha and vipassana, but we call it vipassana because it it is meditation which allows you to see clearly. There are certain meditations that only allow you to have samatha. But there's no real meditation that only gives you vipassana. There is technically, but it's not... Well, I guess you could technically say there is, but you really need both. And and practically speaking, in the beginning, vipassana meditation isn't going to feel so calm. But this, the calmness that comes comes through through seeing clearly. But but mainly, it also comes just because you're practicing, you're doing walking and sitting, you're restricting your activities when you do formal practice. So. There's calming involved, there's summit tranquilizing involved. But it's not called samatha meditation. We use that to refer to those types of meditation, somewhat pejoratively, to those types of meditation that only that have nothing to do with reality and therefore cannot bring clarity about reality and not help you see reality clearly. I have found when I meditate outside, I'm more mindful. Because of this, should I lean towards meditating outside whenever possible, as opposed to indoors? No, you really shouldn't incline in any direction. The, the one thing you could do is incline towards chain, you know, meditating in different spots, but even that I'm not so sure about. The, the point is, when you start thinking like that, you're trying to make your meditation better. And that inclination is itself a habit, trying to fix things, trying to, to improve things. And that's, again, not our purpose. Our purpose is to see clearly. Really, you have to have to have to have to get this, get your mind around this concept of, of just trying to see things clearly, nothing else. There's no other inclination you should have. Any other inclination, especially trying to fix or change or better anything, it's just going to get you off track. It's not actually going to make things better. It's going to develop the habit or the the inclination in that direction, which becomes habit-forming and disappointing when you don't get what you want. You see, see, watching, seeing clearly doesn't have that problem. There's no not getting what you want. Because there's not, it's not about wanting. Uh, if you want to see clearly, maybe, but when your inclination is just to see clearly, because it's choiceless, there's no agenda. When practicing meditation and mindfulness on our own, is there a risk for the person's mental health? There's, there's not in and of itself a risk. See, the problem is that if you have mental health issues, you, you, you can very easily misunderstand what it means to be mindful. Our, our perceptions can be skewed. And because meditation involves mental work, um, you, you can cultivate harmful meditation habit. 
So I've, I've talked about this last week, I think. As long as you're clear that you're you're practicing according to a, a good teaching, a simple and, and useful and helpful teaching, then it's not dangerous. But you have to be vigilant when you're practicing on your own. I mean, unless you have really... Uh, you know, substantial mental issues it's not likely there's not really any any danger there's just the potential when a person has issues of obsession especially fixation obsession is such a big one because that's what pushes you on there are other people have problems that discourage them from meditating when you practice on your own the most common thing is to just be discouraged and lose interest and stop meditating and there's so many reasons for that that's the most common one. But in some cases, when someone is obsessive, they'll just push and push and push and drive themselves crazy because they'll never stop practicing. They'll just make it worse and worse and worse. They're not really being mindful. They're not actually practicing. They're just getting caught up in some obsession they have. And I've seen that before with meditators. With, that I guess didn't have very good instruction. Never had a problem with any of... I never had one problem with one meditator that I can remember. I've had problems with people stopping, of course. Some people run away, but I've never had a problem with one of my meditators going crazy. And I, I may just be lucky. I might just be lucky in that sense, but um, I have seen it with other people's meditators or meditators who didn't have great instruction, didn't have a, a very close instruction, and and of course had their own issues. It was you can't blame a teacher or something. Mostly just their own issues. Note what is clearest if there are multiple experiences. Does this apply to the main objects? For example, if an image or sound arises, but a touch point is clearer, one notes touching instead of seeing or hearing. I would say try to note everything anything that comes outside of the main object. Don't try and make a judgment about what's clear. When something distracts you from the main object, note it no matter what, and then go back to the main object. But it's not a hard and fast rule. There are no hard and fast rules. It's just guidelines. And guidelines are important. They keep you on track, but it's important not to be too rigid because you're the one fighting in the trenches. You have to assess the situation as long as you keep to the principles stick to good practices try to always come back to the main object try not to ignore anything whenever i meditate my mind does everything to stop me from meditating for instance it will remind me of things that i need to get done what should i note in this situation No, there's no thinking. If you're distracted, not distracted. If you dislike the meditation, dislike me. Lots of things going on. It's just a matter of sorting them all out. This is why we recommend intensive practice when possible. Because eventually that's the best way to really sort all these things out at a meaningful level. Would it be against the instruction to begin the touch point cycle from one of the later touch points in order to practice some of the touch points I do not always have time to get to? No, there's no reason for that. There's nothing special about any of the touching points. You'd only do a certain number of touching points if you feel like you can get through them. If you're only doing a very short meditation. But if you're not getting through them in a, in a reasonable amount of time, that's something you should address as well. Maybe you're too distracted. Maybe you have to remind yourself to stay focused. And come back to the point. Try to continue always where you left off if you can.
can we add sitting or walking meditation to our daily practice in a way that wouldn't balance walking and sitting as one-to-one -one ratio? Sometimes I can't walk, but I can sit, and I would like to take advantage of that time. Yeah, there doesn't need to be a one-to-one -one ratio. For our at-home course, we require, and it's an artificial requirement, but I just want to make sure that people are doing at least some meditation. So we have an artificial requirement of one hour a day, and that has to be one-to-one. -one. But your whole practice doesn't have to be one-to-one, -one, even at the at -home, on the at-home course. It's just that anything less, I feel, than one hour. I mean, it's an artificial but a useful minimum requirement. It shows that you're, you're uh, dedicated. Of course, you can do less than that, even. But I don't feel like it's really worth our time to meet every week if you're doing less than that. It, it shows a bit of a lack of dedication. Which, which isn't the end of the world, it's just, this is our cutoff, right? Um, but even then, if you do an hour, if you do that hour, half walking, half sitting, and then you want to do some more sitting or some more walking, great. Hour to you all, absolutely. It can also be that you've done a lot of walking during the day for, through your work and whatever. So once you've done at least that hour a day, you just want to do some sitting, which is absolutely the best thing you could do because you've already done a lot of walking, then go for it. Do the sitting, and that's the best thing you can do, better than doing trying to do walking. It's just that you need to have enough free time and enough dedication to at least do 30 minutes walking, 30 minutes sitting. And by the end of the course, we have to you have to be able to double that. By the end, you have to be up to at least an hour a day walking, an hour a day sitting, total. And, and you know, try to do half and half, just walking and then sitting. For that, it. Some people do more. If they have a lot of time, they can do four or five hours a day. Well, that's rare, but some people, yeah. I have been practicing for years. Outside of formal practice, when talking to people, I am not mindful, and I identify with every feeling. Any tips for being mindful in life, especially in social situation? I mean, it's a challenge. I don't know what kind of tip I might have. It's just something you have to work at. It can take lifetimes. Practicing for years is actually still a very short amount of time. Even a sotapanna can still be reborn seven times, seven life, seven more lifetimes, and they're already a sotapanna. Don't be discouraged just because you've been practicing for years. Still got a long way to go, potentially. During meditation, when the mind won't stop racing, is it better to come back another time when you feel calmer or just force yourself through the session with mind racing nonstop? Well, if your mind is racing, try and do lying meditation. Lie down or at least sitting meditation it can be beneficial for that but no i mean ultimately you want to just not distract it and just be patient with it You're not trying to fix it every time you re realize that your mind is racing just say distracted distracted it's important to learn about that see how your mind works Is there any benefit to focusing with more exclusivity on rising, falling, sitting, touching outside of formal practice if an environment is particularly distracting? No, if it's particularly distracting, that should very much be your focus, the things that are distracting you. It would be, it would be in any situation, it would be detrimental to try and ignore or block off block out certain experiences. I mean, just, that might, it's not, not, it's true, but practically it, it can be, I'll give you that, it can be beneficial to, to limit, but that's only a, a, a conditional or a, a, uh, temporary benefit because of how hard it is to be mindful of so many things so you might um, not limit yourself but 
to content yourself with at least trying to be mindful of the basic things. So when, when the environment's very distracting, you acknowledge that you might not be able to be mindful of everything. And you just say, okay, I will content myself with at least trying to be mindful of the basic. doesn't mean blocking anything off, but it means limiting your, your work because you know you're just not going to be able to note everything. And also, you never you never do have to note everything. You just have to be mindful in noting something. Try and cultivate this state of mindfulness where you're seeing clearly. Because all it takes is to see one thing as, as an arisen phenomenon. If you just see one thing perfectly clearly, then the next moment is Nibbana. The mind lets go. Freedom. Just gets it. That's the thing, is it just gets it. I tried to do about three or four hours of meditation a day, but I find it exhausting or hard. I also feel that I cannot do anything else in the day. I have schizophrenia. Should I do less? Well, yeah, I mean, you don't want to just push and push. Meditation isn't about pushing and pushing, especially when you have mental issues that I was talking about that could potentially lead to things like obsession, where you just push and push, you'll just drive yourself crazy. So the more meditation you do, the better. But don't do so much meditation because it, it, just just doing it, the only way it's better is if you're really good at it. You see, so so to start, do very little meditation until you get better at the quality of your meditation where it's not hard, where you are seeing clearly, where you are present, and then you start to increase. If you just do lots and lots, it's not going to make it better because you don't have any of the quality. So it's this you know cliche quality over quantity, but it, or or balancing quality and quantity anyway. So, I mean, being exhausting isn't a problem. Being hard isn't really a problem, but you just have to be sure that you're being mindful of those things. And I would say if you're getting to the point where you're feeling like it's exhausting and hard and that's a bad thing, that you might want to scale it back a bit, a bit. I mean, it should be both hard and, and somewhat tiresome, but it shouldn't be exhausting and, and painful or anything like that. And and the other thing I would say is try and learn about being mindful in daily life as well. Be mindful of everything that you experience throughout the day. Because that will support your formal meditation. So when you say you have nothing else to do, well, take that as an opportunity to be mindful just of anything. And and during the day, it doesn't have to be mindful of everything, as I said. Even if you're just mindful of the four postures, when you're walking or standing or sitting or lying, just keep it simple. When you walk, say to yourself, walking, walking, and so on. I feel I'm taking things too far and obsessing about reducing the spread of the virus. Should we just follow general public health officials and medical doctors' advice, or should we hold to a higher standard? We shouldn't obsess about anything. I think that's clear. Uh, there's something noble and, and honorable and, and Buddhist about following uh, general public health officials, that sort of thing, you know, to, to, to consider carefully and when something appears to be sound uh, and and not not based on defilement then you just follow the the way people are you know the way society is going you try and find the good in things that the good part of what what uh, public health officials are saying and you promote that like you see how public health officials appear to be interested in the well-being of people and you pick up on that and promote that Try and paint it in that light to try and create the narrative, control the narrative, so that the reason why we're doing this 
is to support people's well-being. So you control the narrative to make it wholesome. You don't just be stressed and, and controlling and yeah, manipulative, which is something governments are often accused of. But as far as reducing the spread of the virus, that's not something of our concern. I think we have, I think in regards to this situation particularly, we should be vigilant in terms of trying to stop the spread um, just because it's the right thing to do, but we shouldn't be obsessed over it. We just do. We're vigilant and we're careful. I mean, it's something that we have a responsibility to be vigilant as as citizens, not as Buddhists, but as citizens. And as Buddhists, we are, we, we see the importance of being responsible citizens, of, of doing our part and having wholesome relationships with others that make them respect us and, and that, that help us live up our end to our end of the social contract. I find myself focusing too much on the touching points and trying to force myself to return to the breath after noting one or two things. Should I just let experience flow and note it? So you note something until it goes away and then just go back to the stomach. There's no forcing there, but if you get distracted again, note whatever distracts you. There's no forcing involved. You just go back to the stomach and start with the rising. If when you do that, then your mind gets pulled by something else, that's fine. Note something else and then go back and try again. There's no, you know, you can't force yourself. There's no need to force yourself to go back, but you don't, don't, what you shouldn't do is force yourself to stay with the rising, falling, whatever. Is it good meditation practice to note the pleasure born of seclusion from sensuality and unskillful mental qualities? Yes, of course, because it's also something you can attach to if you're not mindful of it, so you should absolutely note it. Does loosening from attachments, or at least some attachments, happen before stream entry? Is it like a loosening or an on-off switch? Oh yeah, every moment you're mindful is loosening attachments. That's just one way, it's just a, it's a conventional way of putting it, but it's a figure of speech. It's a, a reduction in the moments of unwholesomeness, of kind of cutting out the amount of unwholesomeness in the mind. So absolutely, even without becoming a sotapanna, you're going to be far more pure through practicing mindful mindfulness. How can I, as a meditator, know if I am following an enlightened teacher? I find it difficult to place faith in someone I don't know. Well, you have some kind of conditional appreciation. I mean, you'll never really know, or you never really even need to know, but you place your conditional, you should never place complete trust in a teacher, of course, or a teaching. But you need some kind of conditional faith or confidence, which can be based on all sorts of things. But at the very least, it's based on a willingness to try. Like the Buddha was willing to try many meditation types, and he tried them out, and he had an open mind. He didn't blindly follow them, but he, he tried them, and he saw that they didn't lead where they needed to lead, and so he stopped. And so that's how it goes. You don't ever need to acquire perfect faith in your teacher. That would be dangerous, even. You need to acquire perfect uh, faith in the, in the teaching, in the practice, in, in the, the activity. And that comes, that can come, because that's something you connect with on an experiential level. You can't connect with the teacher on an experiential level, and you don't need to. But you connect with the practice, and when you connect with the practice, you'll see what it's doing. Whether it's beneficial, detrimental, and mindfulness is so purely beneficial that you can't help but gain perfect confidence in it. There's a bold statement, though. It's a good one to end on. Here one questions and we've crossed the hour, Bhante. Thank you guys. Sadhu.
Thank you everyone for coming out. Wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering.